Welcome to We Will Rise, National Parks and Civil Rights. Close your eyes and imagine a national park. Are you picturing waterfalls and mountains? Or do you think of Dr. King's childhood home, Japanese internment camps, and a school that became a battleground for racial integration? National parks aren't just wilderness. They are spaces of remembrance, founded to preserve the stories of who we are and how we came to be. National parks inspire us to do better, be better, to climb mountains, both physical and figurative. Join park rangers, researchers, authors, and activists as we discuss what liberty and justice for all means on our public lands. All right. Well, here we go. <laughs> From our like eight eight feet apart. Yes, very COVID safe. Very COVID safe. Wearing our masks. Um, and I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Kat, and I'm a park ranger at Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. I also work at Freedom Riders National Monument as well, but I'm based here. Um, and I'm so honored to welcome you here today, uh, Miss Ashley M. Jones, the poet laureate of Alabama. It truly is just such a joy to have you here. Um, Ashley holds an MFA in poetry from Florida International University and is the author of a number of poetry collections. And I hear that you brought a few of them in your purse. I did. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, well, I want to start first and foremost with the poet laureateship, because that's like the big news in your life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious, like, could you set the scene for us as to like how you found out that you were awarded this honor? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you knew you were going to be considered, mm -hmm. what you felt and experienced when you found out, where were you when mm. you found out, you know, um, and, you know, how the people in your life responded to the news? Well, it's interesting. A lot of people assume that it was like the Oscars or something, like you don't know if you're going to get it. And like the moment is the moment you're like, oh, wow, like this is, you know, what a surprise, you know. Um, and it's a little bit different than that, at least in Alabama. The process is pretty long. Um, so I knew that I was interested, um, you know, a few years ago. I knew that it was a four-year term for each laureate. And I knew that um, the previous laureate didn't express an interest in doing it again. So I thought, okay, here's an opportunity. You know, hopefully somebody wants to nominate me. And so um, last year, several people from the community sent in nomination packets on my behalf. And so what that entails is they, um, they asked for my consent. First of all, it's not a surprise at any stage. Like you have to be um, willing, which is great. Um, so they asked me for my consent. And in the packets, um, there is a little demographic portion and then there's a letter of support from them. And they could also ask others to write letters in that packet. And then um, there's also a writing sample in that packet. So there were like, I think four, four or five people who nominated me. Those nominations then went to the Album Writers Cooperative. And the, the Album Writers Cooperative is an organization which serves writers here in Alabama. It's the oldest, fairly certain, it's the oldest writing organization in our state. It was founded in 1923. Um, and they shepherd this process for the state of Alabama. So the packets were sent in to them to a committee that was assembled by the AWC president, TJ Beidelman. 
Um, and the committee is made up of different writers and professionals from across the state. They deliberate on all of the nominations. I believe there were a total of four people nominated last year. And I was chosen unanimously wow. as the selection to go forward, bef go forward um, before the membership of the AWC. And they had to then vote me in as the official selection. From there, I'm awaiting my firm date from Governor Ivey's office to be commissioned by her. So that's the whole process. Um, and like I said, it's a lot longer than most people realize. Um, and then, so as far as my surprise, I wasn't surprised like for the whole year that it was all happening because I was a part of the whole process. Right. But I was surprised, and I did not think I would be, but I was very surprised during the voting process. So it was over Zoom, obviously, because you know how it is. Um, you know, we were on Zoom, and I knew all the people who were voting because I'm a board member of AWC. So these were friends of mine, which doesn't mean that it was like nepotism, by the way. It just means I know the people. That's kind of part of the job as poet laureate. You know the people. So um, I saw them voting, and like as I was looking out into the Zoom, and of course I had on my special, you know voting day outfit, um, we can get back to that, you know, later. <laughs> I was in my parents' house, because um, that's where I've been staying for a while. Um, since my father passed in April, we've mm -hmm. all just kind of converged um, mm -hmm. at my parents' house, which, I mean, we always were there before, but now it's a different sort of, you know, togetherness. So I was there, and I knew my mom and siblings were upstairs watching the Zoom in another room, and we all just kind of were waiting to see, like, okay, are they really gonna do it, you know? And so seeing the people raise their hands, mm. like that just sort of threw me in a way that I wasn't expecting, you know, mm. like I really felt, oh, it's hard to really put into words. I felt just thrilled and then also a little nervous and really just honored and humbled that all these people really believe in me and believe mm. I can do the job. And then the gravity of the history of it started to sort of descend. You know, like I knew for months, okay, I'm gonna be the first black one, blah, blah, blah. Like it kind of was like, whatever, you know, that's cool. But I didn't really understand like, oh wait, this is a whole like paradigm shift happening before my eyes. Yeah. And I'm the one, like, I think it started to hit me that I was the one who had to do the thing, you know? Like before I was like, oh yeah, I'll do it. But in that moment I was like, oh, I'm gonna do it. Who am I, you know? Mm -hmm what said that this was my destiny like you know it's moments like those where you just really start to step back and say wow I, was i really put here for a purpose you know yeah and is it right now that i'm realizing i'm walking in it you know anyway so i had this whole moment and everyone was so proud and what i didn't say too is that tj um the president of the awc he also is my department chair at the alabama school of fine arts and he was one of my first teachers when I went to school there. So I've known him since I was 12 years old. Wow. So all, you see where I'm going here. Oh. The layers are just unreal. Right. And to see the pride on his face too, mm. meant so, so much. Here's someone who has really been with me from almost the start of my writing journey. And you know, he was such an important teacher for me in school because he encouraged me so much. and. I felt like he really saw me, you know, and that's mm -hmm. so important as a teenager to feel like an adult actually acknowledges you, you know, right. as a human being. Um, 
And you know, then the media started coming in, and that's when I really was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like what is this? <laughs> right. What am I doing? What have I signed up for? Um, but it really was like what you dream about when you're a little person wanting to be a writer. You hope that people care about what you say. You hope right. that you can make a difference. You hope that the little person that you were has someone that they were looking for. You know, like I, I was looking, I think, for me hmm. as a little girl. Um, and it's just so incredible to think sometimes we are the ones that we are looking for. I think somebody maybe has said that before. So whoever's quote that is, thank you for the quote. But I think it's in the movie Frozen. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm sure someone else said it beside Elsa I or sure Anna. Hope so, but, wow, um, but I just remember it very distinctly because I, like many little girls, do love that movie. Wow. I mean, it's maybe I'm like a, a 90s Disney purist. You okay. Know? Like, okay. I can respect that. I don't know. I, I, I hate to be a purist in any way, but I just really, nothing quite hits, you know, like those <laughs> those movies of my youth. Right. Um, and I don't have kids of my own, so like Frozen never quite made it for me. And I love watching, you know, kids stuff, but mm-hmm. something about Frozen just hasn't quite... Maybe it's because everybody likes it. I'm like kind of a hipster, which is maybe embarrassing to say. Um, but everybody loves it so much. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, something's got to be, you know, amiss. With right, um, right. No shade to Frozen, though. We love Frozen. It's right, great. right. Um, the twist ending, my goodness. Right? <laughs> that, Am I right? Yeah, me. yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I've just been, have been feeling a lot of feelings. And um, I'm so glad that my dad did know that it was going to happen before mm. he passed away. Um, and of course, the first thing he asked was like, oh, how much does it pay? <laughs> you know, because he's your dad, right? Um, but he was very proud. I mean, he he was proud of us if we just, you know, took a breath, like you could do anything. And yes. he was just so proud that we existed, um, which is what you want in a parent. Honestly. Absolutely. We have been me and my siblings. We've been so blessed to have our mom and our dad. Um, I would not be anything if I didn't have them, honestly. They have, they laid the path for us in almost every way, well, in every way, truly, you know, from little babies, you know, making sure we were cared for, making sure we could read and write and imagine. I mean, gosh, I could go on a tangent about them. So well, I'm stop. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I do want to ask about your parents. And mm-hmm. so I can like skip to those questions, actually, because I, I read about your parents and mm-hmm. how much they valued creativity and, um, I, I read that your father did pencil drawings. Yes. And um, I know your mother encouraged reading and writing and, and mm-hmm. I'm sure had a creative practice of her own. Um, and I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to like where they absorbed that love of creativity mm-hmm. from. And if there's something in particular that they created, you know, particularly your dad or, or your mom, mm-hmm. um, like a pencil drawing that is meaningful to you or has informed your work in some way? Well, yeah, there's a lot of answers I have to give now to this question. Um, I'll start with my dad, um, who, as you said, he, he could use a pencil to create like a photorealistic portrait. He had no lessons ever. Mm-hmm. When we asked him, like, when, how did you know you could do this? He said, well, I just, you know, picked up a pencil one day and I was bored. And I said, I want to draw Mickey Mouse. And so I did. Hmm. And it was only when, like, I think his mom said, oh, that's really good, <laughs> you know, that he decided, or he realized, I'm good at this thing. Right. Um, and he never really, like, made a career of, of doing art. Um, he would help us with our projects, 
both of my parents are very hands-on, like super hands-on um, parents. Um, but he would like help us draw things for school. And he actually, in our house, we have um, these portraits of all the kids. So me, my sisters, and my brother that he drew by hand. Mm. And they're hanging up um, in the living room. But other than that, you know, he really never, he didn't really draw very often at all, um, even though he had this amazing talent. But he did do a lot of things in the garden. And that was sort of the way his visual arts manifested, creating beautiful, um, how do I say, I'm not a gardener, but you know how the flowers are arranged in the little plot? Like yeah. he did that thing, you know? Right. Um, and he built things out of wood. Um, we have these herb, um, I'm not a gardener. The things that the herbs <laughs> grow in, like right. the, the planters perhaps yeah, yeah, is the, yeah. the word. Um, people assume that I'm like so good at gardening because of my dad and I'm like, yeah, that was his thing. You know, I enjoyed the fruits of his labor and Ooh, yes. I did what he you know, told me to do when I was out there. But uh -huh. I, There's a lot of weeding. <sighs> yeah, that was not something that I enjoyed um, at all. Uh, but he built these things by hand and um, he loved imagining how to like rig something up. He could fix literally anything. We rarely had to call any sort of repairman. That's why now it's like, what do we do when something breaks? Right. Who do we call? Because usually dad would just fix it, you know, mm. um, even if he didn't know what he was doing. Like as a kid, I thought he just was like had all this experience in fixing, but he just was figuring it out by himself because mm. he was, I mean, brilliant, you know. Um, so and I don't know where that came from for him, honestly. He wasn't raised in a particularly creative household. He was one of 12 children and he endured um, abuse from his father, mm. um, just a terrible man. Um, I never met my grandfather at all, but my aunts and uncles and my dad tell these horrible stories mm. about him. Um, clearly a very hurt man, you know, there's no way you can do things like that to children or to your wife if there's not something broken, yes. you know, inside of you. Absolutely. So I have always wondered, you know, what that is and what of that lives in me mm -hmm. because I, it lived in my dad too you know he spent his whole life fighting that you know the the history of that and the shadows of that right um and he i mean he did a great job of not repeating what his father did you know that was very clear in his mind that he would not be that kind of father and he was not at all um but i can't imagine what he was carrying you know right um Anyway, so I'm not sure why he decided to draw that day. If it really was just, I'm bored and want to do something, mm -hmm. I don't know. I would say that it was given to him. I believe all of us are given something. And I believe that you know God or the universe or whatever you call it, reveals that to you at whatever time you need it. Hmm. And so perhaps he needed to escape, you know, or to feel valuable because his father was one who told him that he was not you know, valuable. Hmm. told him he wasn't smart, all these things. Um, and so maybe being able to draw gave him some sort of confidence. I don't know. Um, and then my mom, I'll transition. My mom, um, she is not an artist, you know, um, in any traditional sense. She doesn't draw um, or sing. I mean, she sings, but she doesn't sing very well, um, which I love. <laughs> Do you want me to edit that out and post? Oh, no, she knows no. she can't sing. She, <laughs> she knows. <laughs> she knows because I've told her um, like I'm so nostalgic for her bad singing like she would sing us lullabies <laughs> terribly 
And she was like kind of making it worse, you know, for fun. Right, but, right. Um, but she's not a singer at all. And I told her, you know, mom, if you've been pretending this whole time and you like actually are a super good singer, I'm going to be so angry. <laughs> not because I want the good singing, but like I've grown so attached to this oh, terrible yeah. singing. Right. And then you just do this, like, you know. But so far, <laughs> she's not pretending, you know, she's, she's not a singer. Um, and she doesn't write, like she's not a writer or mm -hmm. anything. However... I think if someone had like made her do that as a young person, she definitely would be doing it. She's um, got such a good eye, you know, I've always gone to her with my work since I was young to ask her, you know, what does it sound like? Is it mm. good? What should I fix? Give me some ideas. And she always, you know, is able to do it, um, you know, very naturally. So, you know, and she also never, she never discouraged us, neither of my parents. We were raised in a household where what we did was art, mm. you know. We were reading by age three, um, which I think is maybe unusual, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, we were reading a lot and um, she taught us how to write very early, made sure we knew how to do sentences and, you know, vocabulary and all of that. Um, we watched public TV, we didn't have cable when we were little, which I didn't know was like a, a marker of economic standing, I had no idea. I was like, oh, well, we just have this channel. It's good, you know, as a kid, you never know, you know, right? until you meet other kids and they're like, oh, you don't have this, you don't do that. And you're like, oh, well, I don't, but, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not unhappy. Um, but we would watch, you know, Barney, Arthur, Sesame Street, and at night we'd watch Lawrence Welk, which I know is like ridiculous for little kids, <laughs> you know, to look forward to the Lawrence <laughs> Welk show. Right. But we did. Um, and during the day too, we would be able to do like little arts and crafts. Mm -hmm. My mom would make Play-Doh from scratch, which again, I thought was just like a cool thing that parents could do. I did not understand that it's because Play-Doh was expensive. Hmm. Just didn't even cross my mind. You know, this is when I said we've been so blessed, like our parents were just, and are just amazing, you mm -hmm. know, um, providing us with every experience we could ever need and not really letting us know that maybe our situation was different than some other, you know, people. Um, so we would do that and, you know, paint, draw. I used to draw a lot before I knew that I wasn't good at it. I just, you know, did it. Because again, my parents didn't say like, oh, you suck. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they were like, oh, good job. You're doing so great. You know, keep exploring, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, she, she definitely, she and my dad definitely um, encouraged us to just be ourselves. And I think they noticed, oh, our kids like imagination and reading and, you know, that kind of thing. And they didn't say, you need to be more practical, you know, stop making believe, stop running through the backyard singing, you know, stop um, reading all those books. None of that. Mm. They were very encouraging and put us in schools that fostered that as well. Mm. Um, I think I answered the question. I've you forgotten did. what it was. <laughs> I know. I, I sort of threw like four questions at you, which I I apologize for that. No, no, but cool. no, I think I think that you you really hit it. Um, and it's I thank you for sharing more about your parents because, uh, you know, I think that where we come from and mm -hmm. you know that that just informs so much of who we are. And it's it's just such a beautiful testimony to you know your relationship with them that mm -hmm. they've given you this incredible gift of always affirming you and then never letting you know that like maybe there was a struggle that they that they yeah. regardless of the situation they provided these really wonderful enriching opportunities for you 
Um, and it was never like, oh, well, we don't have access to X, Y, or Z. Right. Like, how can we be creative? Maybe mm-hmm. even just in our ability to be parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to just double check that this is recording. I'm trying not to move my arm too much because I'm a very this kind of talker. Like kind of your your bracelet actually sounds really great in the does, mic. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. So if you ever want to exclaim and move your bracelet, it's not a bad idea. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're building this airplane as we're flying it That's over right. here. Yes. Um, so you did touch on this, but I do want to return to this because I think it is such an important, like thing to address and especially you know here i am i'm a represent representative of the civil rights park and i just mm-hmm. want to talk about um the amazing milestone that you've achieved as the first person of color but also like wow it took that long mm-hmm. like here we are here we are in the year 2021 mm-hmm. um it's just astounding to me um and you i as i mentioned to you i have like read and listened to some of the interviews that you've done and in a previous interview you said you felt honored but it shouldn't have taken this long mm-hmm. Um, And I wanted to ask you, are there some poets in Alabama's past or present, um, people that you feel should have been considered for this honor, whose names you'd like to lift up now? Well, as far as the past, um, I don't know the names, you know, and I think that that's definitely, that definitely says something. I don't know a lot of... um, poets of color who remained here, or at least mm. who were celebrated by the literary community enough that I would, you know, know them, you know. Um, and that definitely speaks to how insular it was, you know, when all of this began. The Poet Laureate Office um, was started in 1930, which is just seven years after the AWC was started um, as well. And you can probably imagine, you know, who was eligible to be in those groups, um, and so a lot of the time of not having a person of color was because we literally couldn't. I mean, it was yeah. probably against the law or whatever, you know, for us to even enter the physical room and certainly the like metaphorical room as well. Um, so I'm not really sure. Like I'd have to do some research um, to, to learn who was making space for black poets in Alabama, you know, throughout all of that time. As far as right now, I mean, there's so many amazing poets in Alabama and I hope after I'm done, um, after these four years, that there'll just be a bunch of people who have the opportunity um, to serve. I mean, I can think of a few just off the top of my head who are doing amazing work. One is um, Jacqueline Trimble, Dr. Jacqueline Trimble. I like to give her her respect. I playfully call her the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Trimble. She's not a reverend yet, but I feel like she's got to do it eventually. Um, But she um, teaches at Alabama State University which is dear to me because where my, where my parents met is ASU. They went, went, attended there for undergrad and that's where they met. Um, so I love that school for that reason. But anyway, she teaches down there and um, she has one book out currently called American Happiness, which I highly recommend. If you liked my book, you're gonna love her book. I mean, she writes about race and Southernness and the difficulty of holding those two identities as a Southern woman, as a black woman, as someone who's politically engaged, as a mother, um, as a a Christian woman, all of these intersections meet in her book. Um, And she has another book coming out next year, I wanna say, called How to Survive the Apocalypse, which the poems in there 
you just wanna you wanna be ready. That's all I will say. You need to go ahead and seek out the pre-order link for that book because it's amazing. Um, and you may see a familiar face on the back giving it a blurb. I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, you didn't hear that from me. All but, right. Um, but yeah, she's definitely someone who's done a lot of important work um, in Alabama and represents so many communities. Um, she's also black, but we have an age difference too. So, um, you know, she, she represents those who, you know, have families. I don't have any children. She, um, she calls herself an emerging poet. To me, she's just like, you know, part of the, the landscape. But um, since she, this is her second book and she is, um, you know, we're not the same age, I'll say it that way. And so she's like, well, I'm just starting, you know, and a lot of people like me who took a long break, you know, from getting their degree, she stopped because her, her mother passed away um, and she had to raise her family. And she came back to writing poetry after all those years, after she had already established her career as a scholar and, you know, worked at various universities, she's now kind of returning to her passion for writing. And so I think she does represent um, people who aren't always celebrated in our community. Like right now, it's all about the hot young, you know, virtuoso. And I'm not calling myself that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I really am not. Um, but that's kind of what's in fashion. Um, and people feel self-conscious, you know, if they're not, you know, 30 and got billions of books and rising to the top of all these lists and everything. Yeah. Um, I think there's this prevalence to have these lists like 30 under 30 mm -hmm. and 40 under 40. And like what I'm really drawn to is like the 80 over 80. Like who are the people yeah. who are still creative, still doing like interesting things, regardless of the barriers that present themselves as people right. age like that. That I think is like truly remarkable for people to, you know, set their work aside, set their life's passion aside mm -hmm. because they there are other roles that we play in our lives, and then to pick it back up. Yep, that is truly inspiring. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine truly like I literally cannot imagine stopping and coming back to it. Yeah, after living all of that, you know, like I mean, I've I have I told her this actually. We were on a podcast together. Um, earlier this year and I said well it's interesting that you say you're self-conscious because I feel self-conscious being a southern woman who's now 31 I'm unmarried I'm not like about to get married or anything I don't have any kids you know um I, like I feel like I'm not whole in some way because of mm -hmm. what society has told us you know about being a woman right anywhere but especially in the south um and she said to me no, you're walking your correct path, so don't even worry about that. So I said back to her, well, so are you. Yep. If I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do, then you had to do what you had to do as well. It all had to happen that way for some reason. I don't know what's going to happen to me, you know, in 10 years. Maybe it's, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, whoever's listening, but um, I just mean like maybe it's that I'm getting this done now so that I can, you know, leave to do something else, you know, mm -hmm. have a family or whatever right. I need to do. Right. Um, but yeah, there, there are many of us working in Alabama now, and I really just hope if nothing else comes from my appointment, I just hope that it shows whoever is out there that it is possible for them, that they can represent Alabama and not feel like, I don't know, um, I'll say it this way. It can be hard to tell people where you're from if you're from the deep south. People make so many assumptions, and most of them are wrong, you know. 
unless they assume that we know how to cook, usually that's true. But, you know, other than that, um, and it can be hard to be someone who is political and progressive and inclusive and say, and also I'm representing Alabama, you know, but I'm hoping that through me serving these four years, people of all, you know, belief systems of all genders and gender identities, sexual orientations, economic situations. I hope everybody is like, oh, cool. That could be something I could do too. Yeah. It is possible. It's not, you know, a closed off club, you know, not to say that everything is solved by me being here. That's the furthest thing from the truth, I think. Right. Um, which maybe we'll get into, but yeah, that's, that's the hope that we'll have so many more names we can say. Yeah. Um, and it won't be some like, wow, it's been almost a century. Like hopefully it's well, okay. And this four years we had this person that four years we had that person. And we have just a plethora of names, you know, we can look at. Right. Yeah. I'm, it's interesting that you brought up the perception that people have of the South. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm from Michigan and my husband is not white. And his parent, his mother, his father passed away, but his mother was so terrified for us to move down here. Um, and she's from the South hmm. and she's also not white. And, you know, had, I think, has a lot of her own traumas from growing up as a black woman in mm -hmm. Tennessee. Um, and we've moved down here and like, absolutely, there are so many issues. Mm -hmm. You know, we were it's still in many ways the city is segregated mm -hmm. um but we've also been really impressed with a lot of aspects of the city as well mm -hmm. um so it you know we've we've realized it's not an either or it's an and you right. know alabama and birmingham can sort of encompass so much um and it's sort of in this uh, almost in this like if maybe if we look cosmically maybe in this like space of limbo of transitioning mm -hmm. from one thing to the next and it yeah. just a lot is happening, um, but a lot of good. So, um, yeah, so we've talked a little bit about the Put Laureate ship, and I do want to, I want to respect your time. And so maybe I'll skip the next question that I had planned to ask you, unless you feel strongly about it, about... I don't remember it. So. It was about um, tokenism. Oh, ooh, yeah. Do you, but do you want to talk about I think we may that? have to talk about that a little bit. Okay, so let's, so let's, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Um, so anyway, I, I have been thinking a lot about tokenism um, and how the successes of a few African-Americans are often held up to demonstrate mm -hmm. change when, um, obviously for so many, the meaningful change is yet to come. And I was thinking about your situation in regards to this and how, and I'm wondering too, you know, reading, reading the poems that you wrote, reading a little bit about your background in terms of education, if to you there's any like comparison in terms of experiences being the first person of color to hold this position. Mm -hmm. um, and then thinking back to your days in primary and secondary school where you wrote, you were the only black girl in most of your classes. Mm -hmm. Is there like a connection there? Does it, you know, is there a connection? And if so, you know, how would you describe that connection? Yes, I think there absolutely is a connection. Um, and this is the thing that most people don't really want to get into because it makes them uncomfortable hmm. because it's really easy to sort of tie it up and say, oh, well, you're here. We did it. It's done, right. you know. But if we even look at integration, you know, and integrating schools in the, I guess, 50s and 60s and beyond, honestly, um, 
<laughs> you know, we don't have to get into it. But, you know, looking at that practice, we know it didn't solve anything at all. If anything, it created new problems, you know. Um, thinking about my dad, who integrated a school in Bessemer when he was a kid, he said um, it was like going to war every day. You know, mm. people were just fighting them, throwing things at them. And it's like, wow, what am I even doing here? This is supposed to be, quote unquote, better, you know. Um, but of course it's not better because the, pro the actual problem is not being solved. Simply putting two people in the room together doesn't erase what they've been taught, what they're expected to do when they see someone of a different race. It doesn't erase the pressure to perform hatred. Mm. I'm sure not every kid who threw something, who threw a rock at my dad, I'm sure not every one of them believed he was worthy of that rock. But they also knew that some other kids or their parents or someone made a situation where they had to do that thing. Mm. Um, and that's not being addressed if we're just, okay, come into our school, that's the end. If we're not changing you know, the curriculum at all, if we're not addressing the ways in which black children are taught differently than white children, mm. if we're not addressing the homes that they go back to, the redlining that happens, what are we actually addressing? Nothing. Um, and so it's not to say that's not a step. I mean, that's, that's, I think, maybe a part of it, but it's not the complete solution. And I do think people are way too eager for an easy solution to a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. um, because again, if you think about where the problem began, it wasn't as simple as, you know, a white person went to Africa and like was mean to someone. It was a lot more than that. You know, we're trying to repair just a horrible, um, I mean, all the words you use to describe it are just terrible. Genocide, rape, pillage, um, trafficking, brutalizing, whatever. Like all of those things are so deep. It's difficult to just say, oh, here's our black person at our office. We have diversity. It's the end. Absolutely not. Right. Um, and the same is true for me, even though I did not, you know, integrate a school like my dad did. Um, just sitting in a room, knowing that you're either one of like three or five or one period, it's not a great feeling. Um, you don't feel like, oh, now I've made it. You really feel like, where are my people? Does anyone see mm -hmm. me here? Am I a check mark for them? Mm -hmm. You know, are people patting themselves on the back because now they have one in their school, in their classroom, whatever. And so a similar thing can happen with some of these firsts, you know, um, obviously, again, like I said in the last answer, it is a good thing to be visible, you know, as a black person holding this position. That's fantastic. I'm very proud, you know, to do that. But I don't want anyone to confuse that with now we're done. The work is just beginning, actually. Um, there's a lot more to do. And, and for me personally, I do feel like it is the case often with these firsts, that the first who's allowed to cross the border, this metaphorical border, has to be held to such a ridiculously high standard. Yes. And I'm not being boastful at all, but I've been working myself to the literal bone like for my whole life to hold myself to an unreasonably high standard because I know I'm not going to be able to enter any room at average mm. like other people might be able to. That's just not true. Um, obviously, I'm proud of my accomplishments. I worked hard because I wanted to work hard, but I also understand there's a reason it's me. 
if that's, I mean, if, if I'm put here to be that person, to allow maybe others down the line to not almost kill themselves working, mm-hmm. great. I'm glad that I can do that service. But I do want to make sure people understand thinking of someone as exceptional is not a compliment. Making it seem like, oh, you are doing well despite your race, that's not good. There's nothing about being black that has held me you know, back inherently. It's not like my black brain can't work like other people. It's the society that I'm working against, not my own blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's sort of how I think about this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Not just with me, again, just with any, any first that we've ever studied in school. You know, um, Those people are always held to a ridiculous standard. And by the same token, those of us who are murdered very publicly are held to an interesting standard as well. Mm-hmm. When someone is murdered, and I have to say murdered and not killed because it's very important how we use our language, all of a sudden reports of, oh, they weren't perfect though. They one time smoked some weed, so that's why they got killed. Or they weren't a very nice person, that's why they got killed. They lived in a bad neighborhood. Like it, It's ridiculous, truly, that we're still not allowed to just be human beings as black people. That's really what I'm trying to do with um, the reparations book that I just released is just assert that we are human beings. Mm. That's it. The sooner we can get to that point, we're not going to have to do all of these, you know, political gymnastics to justify people's murders or to say, oh, we have our first black blah, 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 blah. Let's be proud of ourselves. If we just understand that black people are human beings already, maybe we can eliminate some of these problems in the future. Mm. Wow, it is such, it seems like such a big role to step in on so many levels, generationally, Mm -hmm. personally, um, and then reflecting, you know, multiple generations down, down, you know, what, what the work that you're doing will mean for so many, so many little black girls. Mm -hmm. Um, So many people of color, but I think so many black girls in particular to Mm -hmm. have to have what you're doing and the voice that you're giving to this experience. Not to say that every experience is the same, but this, um, the aspects of it that are a collective experience, mm-hmm. I'm sure is gonna be really transformative for you and then you know, for the state, certainly. They chose you for a reason. Mm-hmm. They, they know your work, they know your voice. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the work that you do in the, in the air, the realm you know, specifically of civil rights, human rights, mm-hmm. social justice. Um, so kind of like going back to that idea of like ancestry Mm -hmm. and how the past informs the present, Mm -hmm. which then informs the future. I mean, it's so weird. Someone once said, and I know this was not in the movie Frozen, (laughs) (laughs) that the past is never past. Right. And I think that is just such a true statement. Mm -hmm. Um, in a previous interview, multiple interviews, you've described reciting a poem in class about Harriet Tubman, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, written by Eloise Greenfield, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Um, and I think it was when you were in the second grade. It was. Which is, that's a big deal as a second grader. Because yeah. I think you, you had memorized the poem. Mm-hmm. Like, dang, girl. Oh. <laughs> well done. Um, and you, in an interview, uh, said that you felt a power you hadn't felt before. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, if you could describe like what that power felt like in your body Mm -hmm. 
And like, did you feel that transmitting to the people you were reading in front of? Like, was, was mm. there something happening there collectively? And then who or what was transmitting that power to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to try to re- answer each of those questions. <laughs> I'll repeat them because, again, I'm tossing multiple questions at you, which is not fair. No, I mean, <laughs> this is how the game works, you know? People have been interviewing me and, and just ask me five questions at the same time, so I'm getting better. Okay, much better. okay. Um, yeah, that moment is so funny, honestly. I had forgotten about that moment until a few years ago because there's a poem in my second book about the, the actual um, recitation um, day. And I don't know what it was that made me remember that that it happened, you know. But once I remembered it, it all just came flooding back. And I don't think, to answer one of your questions, I don't think anybody in the room but me felt the power, you know. I'm pretty sure the other seven-year-olds were just, like, nervous about their presentation. You know, nobody right. really cared, you know, what I was saying. Um, my teacher, I'm sure she was pleased that I, you know, did what I had to do. But I don't know that she, I could ask her. She's still, you know, in my orbit. I maybe should ask her one day if she remembers. Um, but no, it was definitely just for me, within me, um, this feeling. And it felt, it felt a lot of ways. For one, um, I'll explain a little bit about who I was at age seven. That's pretty important, I think, to the story. I, um, as you may know, was a very different sort of child. Um, I always joke that I was born an old lady. Like, all of my siblings, we were all just little old people, <laughs> you know? Um, always, like, weirdly mature for our age and watching Lawrence Welk, you know? Unironically, like, we were literally entertained by the Lawrence Welk show. And if you don't know what that is, I mean... I actually don't. I've been too embarrassed to say it up until no, now. No, I'll but, tell you. But now, since it's, it's a theme that's going to be It's because you're young enough. Like, I should know what it is. Well, I'm older than right. you, so I'm not you're young You're not enough. old enough to know Lawrence Welk. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely not old enough to know. It was... Um, and when you look it up, you're really going to laugh because it's truly ridiculous that these little black children were looking forward to the Lawrence Welk show. It was like a variety show. Um, and I don't even know the years that it ran, but it's it looked like the 50s and 60s, I guess. All white, like very milk toast, you know, like picture Perry Como, um, Bing Crosby kind of okay. feeling. Okay. And, you know, they would do little numbers together, sing little songs and all very happy. You know, the world is perfect, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and my favorite part was the opening, like when they put the title screen up, there was all these bubbles that came, you know, across the name, The Lawrence Welk Show. And we loved that. Um, it's the simple, the simple things in life. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, looking back, it's truly ridiculous, the things that we were excited about. But you are who you are. So. It's true. Yeah, you just, you uh, might as well own it. Exactly. So that's the kind of kid I was, you know, okay. watching Lawrence Welk and, um, you know, reading all these books and just living in my own, like, world of imagination and um, I was in the self-contained gifted class from second grade to fifth grade, which is a really interesting program. I don't know if you've heard of this before, um, but I think they don't do it anymore, and for very good reason, actually. Um, it does, I think, a lot of damage to a student on either side, you know, because they had what was called the typical classes, the non-gifted, which already you're setting up a weird hierarchy. Yes. Um, and then the gifted students who were self-contained, we had a small class of about 10 students, and we got to do like the interesting stuff. So right. we would go on trips and we'd get to read um, more exciting books than maybe the other children because we were advanced, quote unquote. Um, but for me, little you know, empath Ashley, 
I was just like constantly wishing I could have friends in the other classes hmm. because in the gifted class, there was this sort of competitiveness hmm. that I really was not into. I mean, I'm a Leo, but I'm a very different sort of Leo, you know, like, I, I mean, it's not that I don't like competition. We'll ask your siblings later. We'll be interviewing them. And... <laughs> Please yeah. don't. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, they would probably be really nice, but also I'm sure they'd have a take on my competitive nature. Right, right. Um, Every sibling does. Ugh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Anyway, yeah, yes. Anyway. Um, so it just wasn't, it wasn't really conducive to who I was at the time, you know, to be so worried about my grades. And I think I really learned a lot of bad habits about equating my worth with my, with my grades. Mm. Um, because we all wanted to make the highest grade possible. And I remember right. like if you made a 90, it was like shameful almost. Wow. Not from the teacher necessarily, but just the other kids, they were like, oh, well, you know, I made a 98. And I'm like, wow must be stupid you know I'm in a gifted mm. class I gotta stay here you know um, and I remember too like we would get math assignments that were not what the other kids were learning and I would take it home to my dad and be like dad do you know what this is because I don't know how to do this you know they didn't tell us we're supposed to know because we're gifted mm. um, at least that's my memory of it I'm sure if you interviewed other people they might have another thing to say but that's how it felt for me and on top of all of that I had enlarged tonsils and adenoids so I was always congested. I had mm. a voice that I did not like because it was just all sick sounding, you know? Mm. And I would always like look at the other um, kids, especially the other little girls who could breathe through their noses. And I thought, oh, they're so pretty. They can just breathe. I'm like over here heaving and uh, it was terrible. Um, so I had a lot of, a lot was going on in my mind. And on top of that, I had this like proper way of speaking. I couldn't do the like amazing, cool way of speaking that I heard my family, um, like my aunts, uncles, grandma, mom and dad, like they all had the amazing, like the jazz that black people can bring to a thing. Ooh, like yes. they had that, you know, they could, the way they even laughed, it was just like so free. Hmm. And I was just very like, oh my gosh, you know, just very structured and um, which that's another conversation perhaps. But anyway, all of this was in my mind. And I got this book um, from the library, Honey, I Love. And I didn't really read poetry that much back then, actually. It was mostly fiction books. I was obsessed at that time with um, the book Harriet the Spy, because I had a little spy journal that I carried around, just like her. And I would spy on my family, um, <laughs> which is super creepy, I know. Um, but anyway, so I, I, for whatever reason, was reading Honey, I Love. And it was just like thrilling you know, to see black characters and they weren't in pain. That's the other thing. Oh, yeah. I had been very afraid of black history because my parents had us to watch Roots, which I appreciate. Like now as an older person, I'm like, okay, good. We learned about it, blah, blah, blah. But at the time I was like so scared. There was a poem about it in Magic City Gospel. I there think you, you wrote that you were three years old, which is, that's, that's, I mean, I've watched Roots. It's really intense. It's extremely intense. Um, and I definitely thought that it was possible to be put into slavery you know and that's no shade to my parents at all right. like they explained all they could but as a kid you just can't comprehend right i mean as an adult you can't comprehend it either no but certainly as a child yeah. it doesn't make any sense well time also is sort of this like you know hazy concept for a child it is because well and because roots wasn't made in slavery times it's like well these people lavar burton is on reading rainbow right, right. now yes. you know <laughs> I love that guy. Right, he's right. there. If yeah. he's there, then... Yeah, the guy from Reading you know, Rainbow can be enslaved. Like Any of us. Any of us, know. yeah. 
So I had stopped reading black books. Like that was my thing as a kid. Our mm. parents made sure we were always surrounded by blackness in mm. every single way, which again, going back to how did we get blessed with these parents? I don't know what mm. I did in the past life to award me these parents, but you know, I, I took a, a, a left from black history because I was so scared of it. So reading this book where there was none of that, and I saw like the black people smiling in the book, mm. They just were alive, you know, it was amazing. And I felt like, oh man, yeah, this is great. You know, I'm black, just like these people. Um, and so I memorized the poem, Harriet Tubman. And I remember the day um, that it was time to recite, my mom came to the school, which was like amazing. Cause like you feel protected cause your, your mom's there, you know, mm -hmm. none of the scary elementary school things can happen to you cause there's your mom, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so she dressed me up as Harriet Tubman in a white dress i mean it wasn't i don't know who knows how to dress like harriet tubman truly but that's what we did and i got in front of the class and i was ready to go because of course i had been practicing over and over again my mom made sure she still makes sure we know what we're doing you know all the time um and i remember standing up there and i began to recite the poem begins harriet tubman didn't take no stuff wasn't scared of nothing neither didn't come in this world to be no slave and wasn't going to stay one either and it goes on a little bit, but I remember saying the words and just feeling like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I am fully realized. Now, I didn't have those words as a seven year old, but you know, I just felt like not self-conscious. I didn't scrutinize my voice. I didn't feel awkward saying, didn't take no stuff, you know, cause I was very proper English kind of, kind of little girl, but I just felt like free, you know, mm. in a way. And for me, you know, it, it just was a clear like, okay, cool. This is what I want to do now. I've done my little stories, you know, but now it's time for the real stuff. I'm going to write like this, you know, mm -hmm. and I did write about race as a young person. Somebody just asked me the other day, like, oh, when did you start? I started as soon as I started writing poems. You know, I was mm -hmm. concerned with that um, as a young person because that poem, that book was the one that turned me on to it. So I didn't see it as like a problem, you know, to write about race at all. Um, and I just felt more empowered, I guess. Harriet Tubman was definitely speaking to me through that poem. Mm. She was leading me out of something, you know, maybe not literal slavery, but she definitely helped me get away from whatever mental, you know, trap I had set for myself. Um, and then Eloise Greenfield, of course. I mean, I, I hope that she knew what she did for black children with all of her books. You know, just to give us something to read that had our faces in it. Something that had joy in it, you know. Mm. It's vital for us to learn about our history. It is vital. But it's also vital for us to understand that we can be joyful as well. Yeah. For us to know that we're humans as well. Because it does get to a point sometimes when you're in school and all you learn about black people is that they maybe invented some stuff and they were enslaved for forever and everybody hated them. That's all you get. <laughs> you know, you don't get... And here is the long history of how, you know, black hairstyles have traveled from Africa. Here are the songs that they sang and here's what they meant. Here is the great history of the literature that they, you don't get mm. that. You just don't. Um, and so, yeah, it, those people were speaking to me for sure. And I think I was also speaking to me, interestingly enough. I think I finally heard myself for the first time. And that's not to say that it was all like, boom, now I'm, you know, totally fixed, you know, but it was the beginning of a journey for me, I think. Hmm.
Hopefully that answers. Oh, that was that was such a beautiful answer. There's so many things I want to follow up on. And you know, one of the I'm so glad you brought up Black Joy because one of the things that we've been really wrestling with is we're putting together a Junior Ranger book, which I mentioned to mm-hmm. you. And the Junior Ranger book is typically marketed towards young people under 17, but mm-hmm. we we joke that ours is for kids from three to 93. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, we want to recount the history and not shy away from mm-hmm. the harder details. But how do you represent the resiliency and the right. like entrepreneurship and creativity that happened despite that situation, which right. I think is such a testament um, to the resiliency of the human spirit, spirit, but certainly the the like the creativity of Black culture and mm-hmm. all the innovations that have been brought, you know, to the United States, to to the Americas, really, mm-hmm. um, through Black culture. Um, and so we're really we're wrestling with that and and wanting to find a balance with it. And it's really it's been hard. Yeah, I mean, I do think it has to do with kind of goes back to language for me. Like when you think about black history, like there's a feeling that you feel when you hear that phrase, right? Like you expect a certain sort of thing. You expect some, you know, tears. You expect some sad thing to have happened. And I think for me, what I've been thinking about as an educator too, is framing the history, not as this thing that happened to black people is their history, but that the people who did the things that's their history as well, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. If we frame it as this is the story of America, here is what these people did to others, it sort of changes it a little bit. It takes some pressure off of the black kids who are learning it, for one. Yeah. To not feel like, oh, I have to carry now the hurt that was put upon me, because it does feel that way. Yeah. You know, like I think every black person of a certain age, well, my age, I feel like I'm talking like I'm old, but you know, <laughs> Most of us. Right. A little kid will look at you and be like, you're 45. Right. They, yeah. have, they have no concept Believe of me, age. Yes. Yeah. I think that that's a really great point. And it's, to me, it's like the, the difference between pass, passive and active voice, yes. right? It's like, this was done to black people when it's like, no, like white supremacy did, did this. Actively. It Actively. wasn't that it just fell into their hands. Like, oh, here we have these clan robes. What are we going to do with them? No, right. no, no. Right. They went out of their way to make it. <laughs> you know, right. they did that. Yeah to others and to themselves, honestly. We also need to start including how white supremacy hurts white people as well. Absolutely. Because that's always left off for some reason. Yes. And if, I guess, if you go through, I'm not white, so tell me your experience, I guess, but if you go through life believing that this thing has only hurt others and you're somehow like safe from it, what does that do to your mind? You know, there's no way for you to understand how to interact or have empathy or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, civil. when I think about the benefits of civil rights and the benefactors of civil rights, mm-hmm. um, a lot of researchers say it's been predominantly white women that have benefited from, mm-hmm. you know, the legislative advances that right. were uh, pursued on behalf in large part because of the African-American community. And right. then, you, you know, you look at the... Um, the like differently abled co- community as well and all the legislation that was passed uh to to support them mm-hmm. um so i mean there are so many individuals worldwide who have benefited because mm-hmm. um, of the efforts of the african-american community so yeah absolutely yeah um yeah you actually you should look up what female rangers used to wear because there was like there was like a white go-go boot, like short miniskirt situation. And I am not joking. In the park. In the park. Yeah. How are you gonna be outside? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. If like maybe a, a red carpet sort of rolled its way out in front of oh all the lady rangers, gosh. but 
But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's our history. It's the... People are so ridiculous, yeah. honestly. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> I'll show you a picture afterward, but like... Please but, do. But definitely take a look at it. Um, okay, so let me look through my, the rest of my questions. Um, so, like, let's, let's pivot to, like, the role of poems. Okay. Um, so we, you know, we've talked about human and civil rights, and we've talked about you know, what that means in terms of you holding this position as the first person of color to be the poet laureate of mm -hmm. Alabama. But I want to talk about the power of a poem in itself, not, you know, the role that you're playing right now, but like mm -hmm. the poetry that you write and its impact in the world. Um, what have you seen as the power of a poem mm -hmm. in terms of achieving human and civil rights? Well, um, I've seen it in so many ways. And I'm really looking forward to seeing all the other ways as I continue living, um, because poetry is something I think that's so multifaceted. Like it's definitely not just some words on a page. The poem is also the spirit who wrote it, the person who's listening, the person who um, who it's about. You know, it's it's everybody. Um, and I've seen I've seen it change me as I explained earlier. That poem those words in a book. I did not hear someone say it. I did not watch it on a movie. I read it, you know, and it did something, you know, within me. Um, I see it in my students as well of all ages, not just my young ones. You know, they feel, I guess powerful is another was the word to use. Like they feel like their voice is meaningful because they see it there on the page. And then as the teacher, I can say, this is a voice. It's yours. You know, it's worthy of being here. Um, but a story that I like to tell that I think illustrates the changing power of poetry in a very tangible way, um, I am a part of a lot of different things, so we know, but <laughs> I'm a part of um, a group, um, a trio of organizers. It's myself, Alina Stefanescu, and Laura Secord, um, and we're all poets, and we actually all are on the board of my nonprofit, the Magic City Poetry Festival. Um, but before the Poetry Festival existed, we were just planning um, events throughout the city, kind of unattached to our organization. And this particular event that we've been doing for the past few years is called 100,000 Poets for Change. And it's a worldwide event um, where people from all over the world converge on the last Saturday of September. And events are planned, you know, in everybody's town or city or wherever. And those events are centered around socially conscious poetry. In Birmingham for the past few years, we've added an, um, a fundraising arm to our efforts. So we not only do the readings, but we try to raise money for a local organ organization each year. So we've done this for a few years and we've worked with several organizations um, throughout our time. But one particular year, I think it was 2018. What is time, honestly? But <laughs> I think it was 2018. Um, people can Google this once I say all the the names of the um, organizations, it's easy to find. But um, we partnered up with Shutdown Etowah, which is a nonprofit working to assist those who are detained in Etowah um, County Detention Center, which is one of the worst in the nation, um, specifically for immigrant detention. Mm. And so we partnered up with them to raise money um, during our event. And we also partnered with Glass Poetry Press um, and we did a commemorative issue where we published local writers 
and their socially conscious work. So during this particular year, we um, had two events. We usually just had one, but we had two this year to feature all these writers. And um, the events were just, you know, poetry readings. We asked for donations as we did every single year. And, you know, usually you raise like maybe $500, you know, which in nonprofit land is both big and small, as you know. <laughs> you right, know? right. Um, but it's the best we can do. You know, we just do whatever we can, you know, whatever can help. That's all we want to do. So we set our little, you know, goal, maybe raise 500 again, like we always do. And at one of the events, um, we learned that if we raised $1,000, then that money could be matched by the group and it could be used to actually free somebody from detention. And we were like, okay, well, let's try. You know, we don't know if we're gonna make it, but we'll try. So we have our two events and they're, you know, just readings, you know, people are reading their poems, um, one of the representatives from the organization started reading um, letters from those who were inside as well. And through our purely just reading things, like I can't emphasize this enough, we were not doing anything but literally reading poems, letters, you know, whatever. We raised over $1,000, like wow. I think around $1,500. Wow. So we were able to give that money, which I mean, I don't, we, I don't think we were able to know specifics, you know, because legal things. But to know that that money could then be used to literally free a human being, hmm. money raised just by people listening to poems, listening to words written. We are not politicians. We're not salespeople. We're just regular old poets reading poetry. <laughs> That's it. And like I said, I already knew that poetry was powerful. I knew it. I mean, just looking at the history of our, our work and of my people, we have used art. I mean, <laughs> The way that we create art is just unlike any other. I mean, my goodness. To survive, you know, even if you think about um, the songs that were sung, you know, by slaves, enslaved people, language is important, um, you know, using the art to literally save people or to give them guidance or whatever. This story is something that I think modern people can understand. Like, we were able to go from nothing we had nothing to start out with to let's free somebody with this money that we've raised, you mm -hmm. know? And even last year, um, during the, um, I don't know what we're calling it, the political unrest, people have some PC term for what was happening, uh, but you know what it was, yeah. <laughs> you know, people being angry because we watched a man get murdered um, before our eyes. <laughs> um, during that time, my organization um, did poems for bail money and a lot of people were doing it across the country, uh, but in Birmingham, um, you know, we had, just like other people, it set up where if you donated to a bail fund or we broadened it to any liberation-focused organization. Mm -hmm. So that included donating to um, places that helped unhoused people, places that provided food, you know, et cetera, all the, the places that are doing the work, ACLU, you know, whatever. Um, and in exchange, if you send in your receipt, you got a personalized poem by you know a, a team of poets we had assembled, and they would write a poem you know just for you. Um, and we raised, gosh, I don't remember how much, but it was like, I want to say, two thousand something, um, you know, for all those different organizations, which again is like tangible, usable money. You know, one of the organizations that we fundraised for is called Be a Blessing Birmingham, and they work specifically with the unhoused community and they were able to finally purchase an outdoor mobile shower unit hmm. for our unhoused neighbors 
which is incredible. I mean, again, I'm rambling, but the point is poems really can do so much because it's not just words, literature, whatever. It's the actual spirit. Like some, sometimes people really make it too academic for me. Like, yes, I've studied it. I have all the degrees. That's great. But it's really a soul thing for me mm-hmm. as an artist. It's not like, yes, I'm really excited to like write a sonnet and rhyme and blah, 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 blah. That's all fun. It's great. I love it. But I'm more excited to have that conversation with my own soul, mm-hmm. with somebody else's soul. That's what I'm really doing it for. Because it's not given to me by like the God of words. It's given to me, at least in my mind, by a God who is concerned with our hearts and our souls. So, of course, the work is doing that, too. Um, but that's what a poem can do. Long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't. Please don't apologize. That was beautiful. I was not aware of um, these aspects of your work and um, definitely want to hear more. And, um, you know, certainly the, the closure of a lot of public restroom facilities or just facilities in general mm-hmm. is tied to um, the struggle towards civil rights. Mm-hmm. with you know desegregation happening and you know, this, many cities in the south just closing down facilities rather than desegregating so mm-hmm. the issues that the, a lot of the unhomed are facing right now are in many ways related to uh, the civil rights movement of the the 60s mm-hmm. um, and before and beyond so um, yeah it's really it's beautiful to hear how you've been able to make such a tangible difference and i'm sure that of course informed your selection as the poet laureate um, and I imagine will also inform a lot of your work in the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So thank you for, for the gift of your, of your service. Well, thank you. I'm glad to serve. Yeah. Truly. Um, well, I have a closing question, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you for being on this journey with me as I learn how to, um, you know, interview folks. And You're doing great. Thank truly. you. Doing Thank a great you. Job. Appreciate it. Um, so our, before I ask my closing question, is there anything else that you wanted to mention before I ask about you um, or ask you to read a poem from your book, Magic City Gospel? Um, I don't know. People always ask you, what else do you want to say? I don't know what to say about myself. My goodness. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. It is. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll move on. But I, I, there was a question that is sort of a question I wanted to ask, but we'll ask it after that. Okay. And if we want to cut it, we can. You don't have to answer it. Um, okay, so as closing thoughts, mm-hmm. one of the things I found, one of the many things I found so lovely about your book, Magic City Gospel, and I look forward to reading your other ones. This one was available at the Bourbon Camp Public Library um, quickly, so that's the one I read. One of the things I love is that you weave together poems that touch on beauty, love, and hope, mm-hmm. alongside poems that unflinchingly assess the legacy of racism here in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And you, you named it Magic City Gospel, which mm-hmm. is, you know, for those of you who are not in Birmingham, that is a, a nickname for Birmingham. Um, I wonder if we could close with you sharing what or who gives you hope in Birmingham. Hmm. And then a reading of God Speaks to Alabama, which is on page 20. Wow, I haven't read that in a long time. Okay. I saw it in the questions, but um, even then when I read it, I was like, wow, what a deep cut. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, What gives me hope, right? Yeah, what gives you hope here in Birmingham? Or who? Um, What a question. Um, Well, okay, so honestly, what gives me hope is the community that I'm a part of or the various communities I'm a part of. 
the poets who are here really make me excited to be here. Um, makes me excited to continue investing time and other things, you know, in, in the city. Um, but also, I hate to be a cliche. And the older I get, it's like we can't avoid being a cliche, no matter what you do. Whatever. Um, but it's the children, as they say. Children are our future. Right. Um, but they really are. Like, I, I am so grateful to be a teacher. Honestly, I mean, I definitely would not be a good writer if I was not a teacher. You know, there's mm -hmm. only so much the book learning can do. You got to be around youthful energy and um, really humble yourself, you know, as a teacher. If you're not humbling yourself, like, I don't think you're really teaching, you know, like you really have to understand that the students are teaching you as well. Mm -hmm. They're showing you new ways. Um, but yeah, I'm just really hopeful seeing how excited they still are about writing. You know, the world would want us to think that nobody's paying attention to books anymore, that we're all just on the internet, you know, we're all TikToking all day long, you know, um, and that we need to stop teaching history, et cetera, et cetera. But seeing them engage, I mean, literally yesterday, oh my goodness, yesterday, we had, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, I wish you had been there, truly. Um, so we had our competition for Poetry Out Loud, which is a national um, poetry competition. Um, and so we had our school competition, which is like the first stage in a lot of different stages. Anyway, so our students um, you know, competed against each other to win a spot to go to the regionals. So every year it's like really fun to see them do this because it's a little bit different than their typical um, performances because we don't teach spoken word necessarily, um, not yet anyway, working on it. Um, we teach more quote unquote traditional, which I hate the, dis the distinctions. It's all, everything is everything truly, but you know how it is. Um, so they're more used to like reading from behind a podium and right. you know, some of them don't emote as much, whatever. So during Poetry Out Loud, the whole goal is for you to be emotive and just more animated than you may normally be. And so, and they've also introduced a new category called the social justice category, which I think is just amazing that they did that. They did it last year. They started it last year in Alabama, maybe all over the country, I'll have to double check, but um, they started it last year to respond to, I guess, the growing number of students who were writing original poems about social justice um, mm -hmm. and in an effort to like, you know, DEI is everywhere. So everybody's trying to do their diversity inclusion branch. So this was theirs, you know how it goes. Right. Um, but it was, it's good. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that the students have that ability to win, you know, prizes for writing about issues. So yesterday, this is answering the question. I'm, I'm getting there, don't worry. <laughs> yesterday we had our competition and I was expecting it to be good. Like it always is, you know, it's good to see the kids doing their thing and they love seeing each other perform. You know, it was a, it's a very supportive department that we have. And we had like guests, our judges were from other parts of the school, which is always fun to like have somebody else see what we do every day. So they get up and every single student, like I don't even know where this came from. I know that they're talented. I work with them, I know it. But something about these poems this year, people were just on it. Mm -hmm. The poems that they shared, I mean, just beyond. Um, one young man wrote about how difficult it is to be a biracial person and to have, I'm misquoting his poem, I'm sorry, but one of the lines was like, like what is it, how does it feel to have both the blood of the master and the blood of the slave in the same body? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, okay then, 
let me get back to writing because y'all are, I mean, it's amazing. It <laughs> right. was truly amazing. Mm. And to see how proud they were, you yeah. know, to, to share their work and to see us be proud of them sharing their work, like, that's the thing that gives me the most hope for humanity, truly. Mm. That these young people have a chance still to not become jaded, to not become soured, you know, in some way, mm. that they can still see a way through, that they feel empowered to speak their truth. I have to keep doing what I'm doing, mm. if only to make sure that there is a path laid out for them, just like everyone did for me. Mm. They did it for me, I have to do it for them, they'll do it for someone else. Mm. That's the hope. I don't have hope in systems ever, because, I mean, they're, they are what they are, you know. But in people, I absolutely do. Mm. Um, and Birmingham is such a magical place, no pun intended. Um, but it's really somewhere where I think there's so much possibility. And I think we are still struggling to understand what that means, you know, um, in Alabama in general, but in Birmingham specifically, I think we are in a moment where we can decide who we're going to be moving forward. You know, we can look back at the history and understand that we can still be that kind of leader in social justice. We can still be a place that people look to and look up to. Mm -hmm. But you know, coming out of the pandemic and just trying to figure out what it is that we can do as we build, you know, the city, that will determine what happens in the next, you know, fifty years. You know, um, right. what what kind of a place this will be. But I do think we can be an amazing, you know, destination, not just for our amazing national parks. But, um, you know, for other things like the arts and culture that we have here. So. And the barbecue. And the barbecue. Yeah, let's not forget. <laughs> I will admit, um, this was a question I was going to ask, but I'll just admit this aspect of my past life that um, I was really fortunate to go to school with someone, with a teacher who was an excellent spoken word teacher. Oh, wow. His name is Jeff Cass. Oh. And he was all about like, you know, Def Jam poetry. Oh, cool. And he created a nonprofit that ended up being like where a lot of that, you know, those activities were housed and they actually like cut records of like high schoolers Whoa. reading their poetry. So I'm just like putting that little, like just dropping that in your oh, lap. Cause gosh. I like, <laughs> I do not need any more ideas. I know, I know, I know. I, I mean, I'm not suggesting you do it, but I'm just saying that like, I could see well. that being something that happens here yeah, yeah, because, yeah. you know, with, um, was it the voice um, Cole Porter who, who voice passed, Porter, yes. voice Porter mm -hmm. who passed away um, recently and, and just all the work that he did and how mm -hmm. um, how much of a role he played in the Birmingham Public Library system mm -hmm. and all the spoken word events that he hosts I mean there's just there seems like there's a really great space for that in Birmingham yeah. so I know that that was that was huge for me um, as a young adult feeling like there was a space where my my voice my words mattered and getting in front of a group of people and saying things out loud mm -hmm. is such an important skill, mm -hmm. um, especially when it's something that you you really feel passionately about. Right. That is just that is like the most important skill that I feel that I've ever learned, probably in my life. Besides, wow. besides just be a nice person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> besides yeah. just general empathy and mm -hmm. kindness. Um, mm -hmm. So it's so wonderful that you're creating those that space for your students and celebrating their success and acknowledging that they have something to teach you. Because mm -hmm. everybody has something to teach others mm -hmm. and that empowers us to know that we can. Um, 
Oh, great. Well, why don't you read uh, God Speaks to Alabama for us? Sure. I'm really curious why you chose this poem, actually. Nobody ever chooses this poem for me to read. Yeah, I guess I was just, I was thinking a lot about your appointment as the Poet Laureate for Alabama. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the only collection of your work that I've read, and it's so much about place. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about how the education work that we do is so place-based, um, you know, looking at what is what is Alabama mm -hmm. to you? What what can Alabama be in the future? You know what mm -hmm. what can we hope for our not only our heritage spaces and the role that they play in our communities, but what how can we see that reverberating beyond those spaces? Like how can we see right. all of it grow and change and improve? Hmm. I like that. Yeah, I yeah. Hmm. This little poem. But then afterward, you could tell me what the poem's all about. Because yeah. maybe, maybe I misinterpreted it. No, no, no. I, I think you're, <laughs> you're on the right track. It's just nobody ever really thinks about that, um, about this poem specifically, or, you know, that this is a way that I am celebrating the space. Like, usually people are very focused on um, my historical pieces, which is, I mean, I do what I do. You know, that's all well and good. Um, but I also forget, you know, about these moments where I'm really focusing on the place mm -hmm. and what the place is and what it can be, what it feels like. Um, yeah. So thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. God speaks to Alabama. I molded you from red clay, sweet cornbread, the slow drip of a lemon squeezed over sugar and ice. I kissed you to life on the lips. Mama bird, I am. My tongue feeds you blood. I have waited in this heat for you to pucker and say my name. Hallelujah, Alabama. I give you fire and blackberries and white thick cotton. I give you the honeybee and the yellow hammer. Find me, swallow me down and whisper me to passers-by as you sit nightly on the creaky front porch. Thank you. Thank you. I like that poem. Goodness, I really have forgot, I forgot about this poem. <laughs> wow. Is there anything you'd like to say about it? You know, I think it really exemplifies um, the beauty that I feel here in Alabama. Like I, I wrote this when I was in Miami in grad school and like super homesick and just sad, honestly. Like yeah. I did not, I, I was glad to be there for many reasons. It was a great experience, but I'm very, very close to my family. And I realized how much I really missed just the, the feeling of this place. Um, and so this poem, you know, all of these were a part of my attempt to get back, even if it was just by writing it down. And I think it was also a part of my realization that I saw just so much good in the actual place of Alabama. Um, excuse me, as you know, Miami does not look like Alabama in any shape or form. Yeah, I've actually lived there, so I do. Oh, yeah. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> I've survived the traffic. <laughs> Look, 
that's a whole other conversation. I don't know how either of us are standing here today. No, it's a blessing. Oh my gosh. Um, But yeah, just thinking back to like, there's a certain way, and I mean, I know you haven't been here long, but I think you maybe have already started to understand, like, there's a way that the landscape is telling you a story. There's a way that there's like, there's a sweetness sometimes in the air, like, right when the sun is going down, you know, and you see just the trees and the way that the sky looks and it's just it's just beautiful you know you can't at least for me like when i see i'm looking at an office but i'm I'm imagining you know the the landscape when i see the beauty of the state of alabama in all the big and small you know ways even down to like the way the pebbles might look or the red dirt near my grandma's house Mm -hmm. or um you know the the clouds on a particular day or the way the rain falls you know on the crops in the backyard that my dad has planted the way the leaves you know, fall, the way the birds chirp, all of these things, I can't help but recognize, oh, there is something greater than us. It has made this beauty for us. For me, that thing is God. And I can even see it here in Alabama, which is supposed to be such a, you know, scary place. And I mean, the whole country truly is a scary place for many of us, but there is at least still that, you know. And it does go back to my parents because they raised us in such a way that we knew we could actually see God in a much more expansive way than traditionally is seen. Mm-hmm. We can see God in the grass. That's also God. You know, we can see God in a line in our palm. That's God too. We can see God in, in books, in an evening spent around a little television watching Lawrence Welk. You know, it's everywhere. Um, they're everywhere. God is everywhere. Gender is weird for me with God because how, how can I? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah, um, it's hard to ask God their preferred pronouns. You know, um, you can't. So I just stick to God. <laughs> you know, that's good enough for me. Um, but yeah, that poem, that's what it brings up for me. Um, just this moment I must have had. I can't remember exactly what I was like, where I was when I wrote it. But I do remember the feeling of just trying to see Alabama again through the poem. Um, so hopefully that happens to the listeners. They can, you know, feel just hugged, you know, by that that image of God in Alabama. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for that last image of, of beauty and sense of place and hope. Um, it has truly been a joy to speak with you. And I'm so excited for all that you've done, all that you will do, not just in this appointment as Poet Laureate, um, but in your life work. And um, we, we look forward to seeing how, how we might collaborate on some poetry-related events as they touch on civil rights and, and human rights. So thank you again so much. Thank you. This has been great. This is We Will Rise, National Parks and Civil Rights. Thanks to the Salters for use of their song, Turn Me Round. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series. Until next time. Keep on walking, keep on talking, marching up to freedom land.